Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. My name is Taryn Sharma. With me is Mike Lawson, our producer extraordinaire, co-host extraordinaire. How's it going, Mike? It's great, Taryn. We we've been on we're on back-to-back episodes together here. This is this is a good couple of weeks we've had, and uh, I'm excited for this episode. This is this is going to be a good one. I think there was one great Dan's episode in between there to talk about Brett Favre, but. Yes, we have been on a couple more times than usual, and this is something new that we're trying. We're going to have different types of content, same feed, one conduct detrimental family, talking about different things. And so today, uh, this is just going to be pure, undistilled college sports talk. You're going to get about a little more than a half hour of it. And Mike, who's this brought to you by? As always, our proud sponsor, our first sponsor, Themis Bar Review. They've been with us for well over a year now, but we've got a new deal. A new deal. Very, very awesome. You're going to want to listen in the next couple of weeks here. So from today, February 20th through March 31st, if you use the code GOODSPORT500, so good sport doesn't matter about capitalizations, 500, GOODSPORT500, then you get $500 off your bar prep course for Themis Bar Review. Obviously, the, the big push right now is for the July 2023 bar. So if you are a 3L and have not quite yet figured figured out what bar prep company you're going with, definitely head over to themisbar.com and check them out and make sure to put in the code GOODSPORT500 and you get $500 off. As always, we love our presenting sponsor, Themis, best bar prep company in the universe. I used Themis. Mike, you're a Themis guy. Producer Holly's going to be a Themis gal. So we love Themis and, and thanks thank them again for all their support. Today, we have front office sports college sports reporter, Amanda Kristovich, and we've had her on before to uh, talk about different cases. And so very excited to have her back on. Mike, you know, this past weekend, I was so parched, but thankfully, I, I it was just raining threes. And so uh, I, I just had a little bit of orange crush, and then I felt better. It must have been the 32,000 people watching them, feeling the, the pressure of the, the orange. That's the regular Duke effect. But without further ado, we'll kick it to our interview with Amanda. We're welcoming back front office sports, college sports business reporter, Amanda Kristovich, back to the show. We had a great conversation Dan and I did last year about the Matthew Durr case. And so it's great to have you back and, and we'll be able to, to talk to you about Johnson. You've got a great new article that just came out this past week. Federal judges blast NCAA's amateurism model. Should give it a read. Jay Billis retweeted it. That's got to count for something too. So thanks so much for joining us, Amanda. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And yes, I was going to say my my annual claim to fame is I usually get one Jay Billis retweet like around February, March um, when he's like really all in on the college basketball stuff. So it was exciting. Anytime you see federal judges and then NCAA and in between you see blast, I, I think that's definitely a, an eye grabber. So definitely piqued my interest. You also know that the article is well written. Billis is an attorney and he hates the NCAA. So there's got to be a, a good reason that he retweeted it. Just to lay the, the groundwork a little bit here, this case stems from former Villanova player Trey Johnson and other athletes. They're asserting that uh, Division I college athletes are employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act and therefore that they're entitled to be paid a minimum wage. And so what we had 
in front of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit in Philadelphia this week was a interlocutory appeal. And so I'm sure a lot of people listening to this know what that is, but basically a, a lower court ruling is being heard in the middle of a, of a case. And so, Amanda, can you tell us what are the stakes here? Uh, what happens if they rule against the NCAA here? Yeah, so the stakes are short term, kind of nothing, but long term, like kind of everything. (laughs) So I'll set the scene, basically, right? So it was like a panel of three judges in this courtroom. My understanding is there, I was talking to some of the other reporters about this, there could be, if there's like a two to one ruling, there could be like another not appeal because it would still be at the circuit court level, but they would bring in all of all nine judges and like hear it again. But essentially the question that they were asking in this appeal was whether or not athletes could maybe possibly somehow be considered employees under the FLSA. And the NCAA is trying to say like, no, this is not even, been like a a a possible like legal you know situation so the entire case should just be thrown out it like it's it's part of their motion to dismiss like bag of tricks right so if the athletes win all the judges are saying is that they could maybe be deemed employees after they go through discovery and like see what is going on with you know, what's actually happening behind closed doors at the schools. And then to see whether or not the FLSA has been violated, right? So athletes wouldn't be deemed employees and the NCA wouldn't have to like change what it does until the final verdict is reached is my understanding. And then obviously if the NCA loses, they're going to appeal because if they lose, like that's a big deal. So it could be years before we get a final decision here. Yeah, we try to be honest on this show, on all the conduct shows, about what the cases really mean, right? We didn't want people to think that Alston meant that immediately all student athletes were going to be paid. And in this case, also, so Amanda, can you just restate it? This doesn't necessarily mean the end of the NCAA if this particular decision goes against them. Yes, that what you just said is absolutely correct. And what is even more interesting to me is even if the NCAA totally loses the case, at least the lawyers for the plaintiffs, you know, for the athletes are arguing like the NCAA and college sports are not going to like get killed off because athletes need to be paid a minimum wage. That's not the intention of the lawsuit as far as they're concerned or what they've said. They're arguing that there is a world in which the athletes can still be paid a minimum wage and the NCAA can still oversee, you know, college sports like, you know, the NFL national office oversees, you know, all the teams, right? So that's what they're saying. You know, I am a little bit skeptical about that, just from like the standpoint of does the NCAA itself want to exist if athletes are employees? Well, you know, there are obviously a lot of financial implications about not about that there isn't enough money to pay a lot of these players, but like, who is going to lose money as a result of it? And like, how would that have to be rejiggered from like a sort of structural standpoint? But my point is, is like the lawsuit is not to kill the NCAA. It's just to get players a minimum wage. 
just going off of that, I think, again, we're going to keep referring to your article on this, but you, you write perfectly that this wasn't, they were saying that this wasn't an attack on the NCAA as a governing body, but it is a, it, it is a direct attack on the NCAA's amateurism model, right? Which is the whole absolutely circular argument of what is an amateur? Well, they don't get paid. Well, what is payment of an athlete? Well, the, that's a professional athlete, not an amateur. And that was what we saw in Alston, where there's this like cyclical definition that the NCAA has kind of been hiding under, under this amateurism model, which kind of leads me to my next question. Do you think that this particular issue is ripe for the courts right now, given what has just kind of happened, especially my guess is if this creates a circuit split, which I'm going to talk to you about in a second, and it gets up to the Supreme Court, right? That bench, is that a prime, you know, bench with this kind of ripe issue for student athletes, which would be favorable to student athletes at this moment? I mean, I definitely think that this is the most favorable legal climate athletes have ever had against the NCAA, right? Because like you just mentioned the circuit split issue, there's the seventh and the ninth circuit, I believe that have already issued rulings um, contrary to the idea that athletes could be deemed employees. There are some nuances to those opinions, but I think what was most telling when I was literally sitting in the courtroom was like one of the judges had this like line that I think I put in the article where he was like, well, the seventh circuit decision was, oh, well, the athletes are amateurs because they say they're amateurs. And there was a lot of discussion during the hearing about what constitutes, like something I learned about labor law is, uh, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding after listening to this hearing is like the expectation of compensation is something that is sometimes considered, right? So the NCAA is trying to argue, well, these, these kids do it for the love of the game, right? Like they're not expecting to be compensated. And then the ju- the judges were like, well, but like, is a scholarship compensation? Is a scholarship an in-kind benefit similar to like, you know, as a professional, you get healthcare, right? Like that's an in-kind benefit. That is a benefit. This is like a point that the plaintiff's lawyer made. Like you can't argue that someone can't be paid a wage at a job because you give them health care and that health care is worth something. Like we don't live in like a, a society where you can like, you know, give someone a piece of jewelry to like, you know, work at your coffee shop. You, you have to pay them like money, right? You need to pay them a wage. So that was like something that was really interesting to me that not only did they throw out, like at least one of the judges didn't seem interested at all in the seventh circuit precedent, but like literally like trashed it. And again, I think that's why we're seeing this, like, I'm going to keep using it. This is a ripe issue for these benches because especially, and people keep referring to the concurrence that justice Kavanaugh had in the Austin Mm -hmm. uh, decision, basically saying that he was like, Carte Blanche just going after every like, you know, pro sports league hitting the major league baseball's antitrust exemption and going after the NCAA, you know? So I think with what you just said, does this pose issues? And and this is a little bit of a derail. We'll come back, but does that pose issues? Like you said, with scholarships, comparing scholarships as payment, would that impact the generic student who receives a scholarship? So then would they also be categorized as an employee. And I know there are like, there's like work study scholarships and things like that, which again, kind of bit plays in the favor of the student athletes because people get paid as a scholarship and then they have to work for the university. And I never did that. So I don't know the, in the workings from behind there, but 
you know, there are different, you know, comparisons where I think, obviously, again, I, I keep going back to Austin because I was one of the biggest ones, but in Austin, the big comparison they made was the student athlete to the generic student, the, the differential line between the two of, we don't want to create a separation between general students at universities and student athletes at universities. And, and I think that the best line that I, I've said it before on this podcast, my favorite line um, that Judge Wilkins made in the ninth circuit decision was saying that that line has already been created. And this is where my question is going to lead you to is because student athletes have, they are completely controlled. And then every every other general student is excluded from that bubble, that control bubble. You can't use their facilities. You can't use their weight room. You can't eat with them. You can't go to their practices. Right? So my question to you is a piece of it is the expectation of compensation. Uh, that's one piece of it. But the other piece is, and and Dan Lust talked about this on our last podcast when we briefly touched on Johnson, is the control factor. How important is the NCAA and their model and the university's control over these student athletes important for the argument that they should be compensated as employees? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say that as far as the plaintiff's lawyers are concerned, that is like a, a more prescient argument than compensation because the lawsuit encompasses the concept of it, right? Like not, they don't have like a plaintiff from every single sport, but it's like all division one athletes, including walk-ons. And so the idea is like, okay, well, the tennis players like don't make money for the university. So are we going to draw a line between revenue and non-revenue sports for employment status? And this case in particular is arguing that the answer to that is no, because of what you just said. The control that the NCAA exerts over all athletes from all these sports in division one specifically is more similar to an employer employee relationship than it would be to like a volunteer organization and like their volunteers, right? So yeah, and I asked the one of the lawyers that after I was like, is would it be accurate for me to say that that is like your main thing? And he was like, yeah, I think we can like win on that. I think we can hang our hat on that because, you know, because it's not about how much money you generate. It's about the fact that the NCA could choose not to exert this amount of control. The schools could choose not to exert this amount of control. These amateurism rules that they have, it's not the law in the United States. There's no federal law, right? it's their rules and they can choose to change them at any time. They could wake up tomorrow and, you know, burn their, (laughs) their rule book. So his argument is like, so long as they're going to act like employers, they should pay the athletes. If they change that, that's a different conversation. Hey, we're seeing that right now with the name image and likeness rules. I mean, it's, it's turning into a bit of like, whose line is it anywhere where the points really don't matter and the rules are all made up. But I think, again, you, you kind of already touched on it with the circuit split question is with the ripeness of this issue with Johnson right now, especially given your impression, your article and how this interlocutory appeal has gone with the third circuit and the bench, you know, Berger is the seventh circuit case. That was the Penn's women track and field team that was dismissed for lack of standing and basically said that they shouldn't be suing the NCAA. They should be suing Penn University as the entity that would technically employ them as well as they're saying that no injury was alleged. And Dawson was the Ninth Circuit decision, which again, they said failure to state a claim. They didn't really have any injury that they were alleging. We're here. I think what you just said and what you're saying here based on what the plaintiff's attorneys are saying is that they are actually alleging 
an injury that has occurred. We're seeing it now with the amount of money. I mean, we've always we've always known the amount of money that has been made by these Division One athletic programs and NCAA athletic programs. But here, is there truly a claim that is being made that is that that's going to take them to potentially to the Supreme Court that would that would create a, a ruling that would be in favor of these student athletes? Ultimately, then having to go to the NLRB and having a decision on that in terms of employee status. Right. I think in the complaint, they were kind of like <laughs> complaining <laughs> about <laughs> didn't go to law school, as you can tell. Uh, they were complaining about like the control that was exerted over them and the fact that they were like, well, you know, it's like every aspect of my life as an athlete is, you know, controlled by these rules of the NCAA. And and one of those things is like you don't have time to do a summer internship a lot of times. Right. Like. So all these hours that you put into athletics, you, the injuries, like they weren't paid for them and they could have been right. It's funny. I don't think that what the athletes are alleging is what might like be interesting to the Supreme court so much as like you said, a, the circuit split, but B what the NCAA is alleging about what would happen if they lost and the, the plaintiff's lawyers use this phrase parade of horribles like 500 times. They're like, the NCAA is alleging this parade of horribles where there's going to be no women's sports and like college sports is going to cease to exist. And we're like, all of a sudden we're going to be Europe where there's like no like college sports, right? Fate worse than death. Well, that's traditionally, as you know, been a pretty strong argument because like no judge wants to be the judge that's known as killing college football or college sports right so that might be interesting to them but clearly like Kavanaugh would advocate to hear this case but I mean you know it it seems to me that it would be a, a pretty like flagrant circuit split and that would definitely need to be addressed yeah and I think we've heard that argument before right we I mean, the NCAA has made that argument when it came to um, about literally everything. Yeah, Go players ahead. getting scholarships. They made the argument about most recently with NIL. It's always that uh, doom and gloom, and everything is going to be over if you uh, if you rule against us. Amanda, a couple things: Is it possible in this case that the judges were a little bit harsher on the NCAA's position because to overturn the lower court verdict would mean that this case would be thrown out. And so they wanted to make the NCAA reach a higher standard to do that. I mean, potentially, but it also just seemed like they weren't buying it. Like they weren't buying the rhetoric. Two of them came out and said, they literally don't see how athletes couldn't be employees. And the third one who was, I guess the most, I guess, like if you could even say pro NCAA was like, I'm not sure. I'm seeing enough evidence for us to rule that they can't be or like enough evidence that this is even a question we should be adjudicating because it was like, well, a lot of these questions would be answered with discovery, which you have to go back to the district court to do, right? Like they were like, we're not overseeing discovery. So I think that, I mean, they were taking shots and they were like making jokes and they're like one of the one of the judges literally was like joking about like well let's say that like the rose bowl made no money and march madness was called march wasted time and like no one made any money and like 
would the athletes be employees in that case? And the plaintiff's lawyer was like, yeah, because the NCAA still exerts that same amount of control, that same model of control, regardless of, you know, the Rose Bowl not making any money, which we all know. I'm glad that you categorize those as jokes. You didn't go to law school, so maybe your standard of humor is a little bit higher, but uh, (laughs) that's legal humor for you. No, but literally like everyone in the courtroom is laughing. Like I was laughing. (laughs) I, I was snickering. You know, like there were multiple times where there was like this sort of, you know, it was polite, but it was like people were people were giggling, like literally, (laughs) like at what some of the judges were saying. It just seemed the rhetoric seemed very combative is what I'll say. And then the other thing that I'll say is like they don't have to decide that the athletes are employees. They just have to see that there is like a potential and also something that was brought to my attention, which I'm assuming most of your listeners already know because lawyers, but whatever, is that this type of appeal, it's really hard to overturn. It's like overturning a, a call, like, you know, in an NFL game. It's like the, the status quo usually stands, right? You have to have like the, what is the phrase that Mike Pereira uses? Like you have to have, or just like, prove, you know, like something clear. Video evidence. Yes, there you go. So <laughs> it appears that that is the case in this type of appeal, right? So athletes are already like coming in with the leg up. Were there any arguments that the NCAA made that did move the court that they seemed to respond favorably to? Well, they definitely noted that there would be issues about like revenue versus non-revenue. One of the things that the court asked the lawyers to prepare arguments about that honestly they didn't really end up talking about, which I thought was interesting, was the the concept of like Title IX violations and Title VII. I'm a lot more well-versed in Title IX than Title VII, but like in general, it seemed to me that they wanted to hear what the NCAA had to say about one of their parade of horribles, which is that like, if you pay the players, then there won't be any money for the women's sports. And we all know if you look at the way the money flows, that's only the case because they set it up that way. It could be different if they set it up differently. So there's that. But they didn't really talk about that. But it was kind of in the back of the judges' minds. Like, I think that they clearly, like, acknowledged issues with the idea of paying athletes. Like, where would the money come from? And, like, you know, does the tennis player get paid the same as the Power 5 football player? But ultimately, they know they're not the ones making that decision. They're just sending it back down to the district court, right? So last thing I have on this, three months ago, exactly on December 15th, you wrote about the NLRB case. Has the NCPA had uh, any comment on the, on the Johnson case at all? Um, it doesn't appear so. I mean, obviously a win for either of them would be a win for both of them. But like the NCPA is interested, I think, in more than minimum wage. So that's why they're at the NLRB, right? Because they're looking for collective bargaining, which could open a whole other can of worms. So, I mean, they're also, you know, they're also working on those bills in California. They keep reintroducing that revenue sharing bill. So they're interested in more. And But they're also, for now, only interested in football and basketball. That's the other distinction, is this case is all Division One athletes the NLRB case is just Division One football and men's and women's basketball. Let's jump forward. Let's look 
you know, say this all falls into place for the student athletes. I mean, there's a lot of dominoes that would fall following this about what needs to happen with you, you mentioned before, you know, the health insurance and, and different forms of insurance and, and workers compensation and things like that for these student athletes. The other piece of it, it you mentioned is, is title nine, right? So equal sports for, for men and female sports, right? So you can't have as many, you know, seats or, or seats on the bench or positions on the field for men. You have to have an equal amount for women. So if there is an issue uh, down the line, like say you have a smaller school that has to pay these athletes, whatever, minimum wage, or if they're going for more than minimum wage, and it falls into the issue of how much money that particular athletic program actually makes and they can pay, how does that, how will those issues fall into place regarding Title IX if there's an issue with paying athletes altogether? Are there going to be schools that have to lose Maybe their football team, but even though that's their biggest money maker, but they have the the largest amount of roster spots, right? So, do you see or have you heard of any type of issues or potential resolutions to future issues that could fall into play with Title Nine? Well, there are a lot of issues that are always like sort of thrown out there, right? About like <laughs> it would be ironic a school, but it's like. There is no universe in which a power five school gets rid of their football team. It's not going to happen. They're just going to figure out what they need to do to keep it. And I believe the plaintiff's lawyers made this argument of like, well, the schools already are not making money on a lot of these women's sports. Yes, they have title nine, but they could also cut some of the men's sports that don't make a lot of money and then cut the women's sports too. Right like men's rowing or men's tennis or men's lacrosse, right? But they don't because there's a benefit for those schools to having those teams. So question is, does that benefit go away? Probably not. It's good for enrollment. It's good for your your ranking. It's good for lots of things. I mean, and as far as Title IX goes, like, the irritating thing about Title IX is you got to follow it no matter how much money you make or lose. So they're just going to have to look at the budget. And, you know, it's like, well, we're paying Nick Saban $10 million. Perhaps we should not do that. And then it's like, well, then that's the market rate that was set for him. Well, that's the market rate that was set for him because this is a sport that makes as much money as a, as more money than most professional sports in the United States. And they don't have to pay the players anything. So of course, a larger share is going to go to the coaches. Like that's just math. I'm so bad at math, but like that's math. Right. So they basically like the way it works is like the football team and the basketball teams make a ton of money. And then they use that money to fund everything else. Also, because they're not putting investment into the women's sports that could be a lot more profitable. Okay. There are like Olympic sports at UCLA that make like $7 million a year. You're telling me that's a non-revenue sport. It's only non-revenue because you don't know how to balance your budget. That's definitely interesting. I could see the potential for the market price for certain coaches could fall after this, right? You said it yourself with say making 10 million, but does that level go down or does that increase in the amount that the NCAA schools are looking for in their TV rights and TV deals? There's the, the revenue coming in has to go up. If they're going to start 
in their in that model, if they're going to start paying student athletes minimum wage, then they have to bring in more money because they don't want they they like the way that their books are at right now. They're always trying to get more. If they're losing right. money out of that now because they have to pay their athletes, especially in the case of of certain athletic programs that might not make any money, men's or women's, regardless, it's coming out of their deeper pockets, which would be the men's basketball and the men's uh, football programs, but. They're just going to sell maybe higher TV rights or bigger deals for for stadium deals or something like that. The money's got to come in somewhere else. And they'll find it. They'll find it. If it's the it's like if it's the law, we have all these conversations about what should or shouldn't be. Right. Like I'm sitting on this podcast and you guys are all lawyers like it's the if it's the law, like you got to figure out a way to do it. Like that's what's so crazy to me that like. We're having all of these like philosophical conversations and like waxing poetic. And it's like, well, if a court rule, like if that becomes the law, then like you got to just find the money. And by the way, there's plenty of money. If you look at, you know, all the studies that have been done by the Knight Commission, for example, they draw a direct correlation between the the case that broke up the NCAA's TV monopoly so that all the conferences could get their own you know, extremely, yeah, regions, extremely lucrative contracts, then that next step in like 2013, 2014, with all that other conference, real the football conference realignment, and then all of the TV rights skyrocketed, that's when the coaching salaries skyrocketed. Like the Knight Commission, they're great with their graphs. They've got this graph, highly recommend everyone look at it. (laughs) Yeah, the irony of that, Amanda, also is that that was the Supreme Court saving the NCAA from itself. Because it was after yeah. that the that that both the revenue sports became that much bigger. I think we'll uh, put a pin in it there, Amanda. People can find your writing on Front Office Sports. It's a great website. Has everything at the intersection of sports and business. And on Twitter at a Kristovich with two H's at the end. Anything else you want to plug? No, thank you so much for having me. It's just going to be an interesting uh, few months. I mean, I'm, you know, keep your eyes out for all of our like March Madness content. We're putting our package together for that now. Fortunately, my first year covering March Madness, there was a uh, Supreme Court case that happened in the middle. Last year and this year, there hasn't been. So it's been kind of boring, you know, but uh, at least we had Johnson as a nice little primer. Well, we will definitely be keeping an eye on those things and we'll hope to have you back on soon to talk more about it. Thanks again, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks again to our guest, Amanda Kristovich. Again, you can find her on Front Office Sports. Amanda is the college sports business reporter at Front Office Sports. Great friend of the podcast. It was a a really nice conversation, Mike. Uh, I thought it was really valuable, learned a lot. And so we're going to keep doing this, uh, this sort of thing. And we would love to hear feedback, things you'd like to hear within the topic of college sports. We are here to continue to be a resource, just like all of the, the things that Conduct Detrimental does. Yeah. Let us know if you want any particular guests. Amanda's amazing. I'm sure we'll have her on a significant amount of times because her knowledge in the uh, NCAA world is just um, 
unbelievable. Again, make sure to go check out her article, Federal Judges Blast NCAA's Amateurism Model. It was awesome because she was in the courtroom uh, for this interlocutory appeal for Johnson versus NCAA. So it's always great to have a reporter on, journalist on, who was in the courtroom because they can give us really a firsthand kind of experience that we wouldn't have understood. You know, her talking about the, the kind of jest that was coming from the bench, that they were kind of making fun of what would happen if the NCAA was to quote unquote implode or or if there wasn't enough money to go around in the, the parade of horribles, the parade of horribles, and then March wasted time if nobody really watched. So just interesting perspective when you're sitting in the courtroom versus just kind of hearing it from the side. And thanks again to our, uh, our presenting sponsor, Themis. Also sponsoring this podcast is Orr and Horgan. Uh, they are sports lawyers and NIL attorneys in Omaha, Nebraska. We talked a lot about college athletes' rights and college athletes being able to be paid. And this is going to be right in their wheelhouse once the decision is made for student athletes to become employees. So make sure you go check out orrhorgan.com and check out their sports law practice. Thank you, Mike. You can find both Mike and myself on Twitter and at conductdetrimental.com. Thanks to producer Holly, and uh, we'll see you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.